0: Scripture comes from Ephesians six, ten through twenty. It's in the Pew Bible on page nine seventy-nine. Here is the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, but on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness which with which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god praying at all times in the spirit with all power and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me to open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the reading of the word of God. Amen.
1: We are pleased to have Dr. Jim Tebby with us this morning. Jim and his wife, Beth, have spent much of their lives taking the gospel to those who have not heard and they have focused their work on the Muslim world. They have done student evangelism with Muslims in Pakistan. Jim pastored an international church in Bangladesh. He served first as a regional and then international director as of InterServe, and he was the director of three Urbana missions conventions. Now, they live in Jim's birth country of Pakistan, serving as the rector of Foreman Christian College, one of College Church's partner institutions. Jim and Beth are on the front lines of encouraging believers to stand firm as they face opposition to their faith. Now let's hear from Dr. Jim Tebby. Delighted to be able to be with you here this morning and to share from the Word of God. In 2003, there was an Afghan writer by the name of Khalid Husseini who wrote a book entitled The Kite Runner. And uh, uh, three or four years later, uh, it came out as a movie. I've read the book. I haven't seen the movie. But uh, the book begins with a description of a hobby that I spent my childhood um, pursuing, and that is of kite fighting, where you fly uh, kites made of tissue paper and shaved bamboo. Uh, They're very well and carefully constructed by a master craftsman on the thinnest thread possible, it's covered with powdered glass, and you c- cross the other person's kite string, and you try to cut them. That's what you do. And then when the kite is cut, it's chased by others, and that's where this name, Kite Runner, comes from. The person chases after the kites. And we lived on this college compound in the middle of uh, the city of Rawalpindi, Pindi in an area where there were lots of kites, and this compound had 11 acres, and a lot of the kites that were cut fell on that property, and there were about 20 of us boys who tore around after those kites. Um, and, and tried to catch them. We were the kite runners. But for five years now in Pakistan, kite flying has been banned. This was a great sport, of uh, that part of the world and many other countries, and the reason it's been banned is because it's dangerous. It's always been dangerous. Uh, kite string cuts. The um, uh, children run out in front of cars when they're trying to chase the uh, kites. The kite runners run out in front of cars. And sometimes flying on the roof of the, uh, on the roof of a house or something, you step backwards as you're trying to gain a little bit of advantage and you just take one step too far and you're uh, off the top of the roof. But the thing that banned it was that they made that string much stronger than it has been. I've not seen this new string, but apparently it's very difficult to break. And with the powdered glass on it, it becomes lethal. Instead of bicycles being ridden around the cities, it's now motorcycles and small children put on the front of the motorcycles. That string comes, and there have been some terrible injuries and, and even deaths that have resulted from that kite string. So, it's been banned, and there have been attempts to revive it and do other things. Because, but still, it's not, it, It's been it, it, we can't use it. We can't fly kites. Uh, or theoretically you can't fly kites. They still fly them in other, in other areas, but not in the big cities where it can be reinforced. Well, I had this not only in my childhood, but also in my second childhood when we first went out as missionaries to Pakistan in 1977. And I would like to show you a few pictures because I'm going to use this as an illustration for uh, the sermon this morning. So we have here... Let's see what we got. We go. A visit to the kite shop. That's the first thing that you start. You start with a visit to the kite shop, and when I see this picture, my heart still beats a little faster at it. And then uh, you take the kids so that you have an excuse to go. You tell me, well, I'm taking my kids to the kite shop. Really, I'm the one that wants to go, right? This is making that kite string, putting on the powdered glass on the thread. And this is done in a sterile environment. Uh, notice the uh, cow pies drying on the wall behind, and the man is wearing a pristine uniform with an izod shirt, Okay? And then uh, here it is, the thread is being rolled up uh, once it dries. And notice the glass bottleneck on the man's finger, so he won't get his finger cut as he winds the thread. Then you can take it for flying, and of course you bring your child up as an excuse for flying. This is a future missionary of College Church, holding the kite string and pretending to fly the kite. Daniel is now married and has four daughters, uh, all older than this, and they're in Indonesia. And then it's, uh, all right, son, uh, I'll take it from there. And this is a younger version of myself and my wife, uh, uh, who's holding the ball of thread, and then this is an obstetrician, a well-known obstetrician who uh, does, was at that time doing about 3,000 deliveries a year in a hospital south of us who was visiting us. Uh, this is our competition, or one of the competitions. I can beat these guys because they have the disadvantage of a lower roof. I'm looking down on them, and they also don't have as good thread uh, or a quality of kite. But this is the real competition. I took this with a telephoto lens, and this fellow kept beating me all the time. Uh, uh, He regularly beat me. Uh, And then here's the kites flying, and then there's one that's in a kite fight that's there. So it gives you a picture of what the sport is about or what it has been about, and still, eventually, I believe it will come back. In Ephesians 6, Paul uses a metaphor for spiritual warfare that his audience would intrinsically understand— All have seen these soldiers and know about their armor, and they know how effective it is. And so he takes that story and he tells them. The illustration of kite fighting as a battle metaphor is a battle metaphor and gives a picture, too, of missionary life. And so I would like to uh, 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 talk about that. First of all, beginning, there are mentioned the rules for kite fighting versus the laws of nature. The rules for spiritual warfare versus the law of God. Okay. What are the rules for kite fighting? Well, there's only one rule in kite fighting, and it's this. Anything goes. Anything goes. Normally, you fly a kite up and cross strings with another kite and try and cut it. It's a simple game with huge complexities and preparation strategies and skills. But in reality, you will do anything you possibly can to get the other guy. You'll tie a rock on the end of a a string and throw it over his string if it comes over your place and try and pull it down. Uh, When a kite is cut, you grab the string as the person's pulling it back in and grab it to try and break it off so you can get as much of it as you can so you can use it for your own flying. And that glassy string doesn't just cut other string, but it cuts your hands and fingers as well. And uh, as in the kite runner, the one who catches the kite cut, cut kite keeps it and owns it. They won't give it back. In marbles, we call it playing for keeps. It's not quite a blood sport, but if you fly kites, you're sure to see blood and plenty of it. And in spiritual warfare, in spiritual warfare, there are no rules. Anything goes. Satan will do anything he can to get you. This is what Paul is telling us in this passage. It is why we have to be so careful. Satan will not and does not play fair. But while there are no rules in kite flying, there are laws of nature. There are laws of nature, and you can't go against those. There must be wind for the kites to fly. Powdered glass on the string will cut. It'll cut your fingers and hands as well as the kite. I remember my sister got a bad cut on the bottom of her hand one time when she caught some of that string that was trying to go back, and the fellow lets it go and gives it a yank, and then cut right down to the bone so it needed stitches doesn't look or feel sharp, and yet it will cut you. The strategies in kite fighting use the laws of nature to win. You have to move across the other string to cut it. But if yours is tight and taut, you're more likely to get caught. So you don't want to pull it in and make your kite string taut. You want to let it out so that it's loose and it moves across the other. And in order to do that faster than the other guy, you want your kite firmly in the wind, and you want his kite a little bit out of the wind to the side so he can't let it out as fast as you do. And... When the kite is cut, it floats away. It's gone. And just as there are laws of nature, so there are laws of God that order the universe. And even Satan cannot go against them. Even Satan cannot go against them. And the armor that Paul describes is a metaphor for how these laws of God protect the Christian in his fight against Satan. That's what they are. An expert kite flyer was called a Gouda Baz. When I was a child, I used to hear about a Gouda Baz. Gouda is one of the many names for a kite. And he was supposed to take a kite, fly it up in the beginning of the day, keep it up in the sky all day, and bring it down. Well, you know the nature of the sport there. It is not possible to do that without engaging in a fight. You have to fight. Everybody will be trying to cut you. And the longer that kite is up there, the more people will be coming to try and cut you and take it down. And so, too, in spiritual warfare, there's no such thing as just standing firm without engaging in the battle. Our mission theme is standing firm, but it's standing firm in order to engage in the battle. You stand in order to fight. In verse 11, Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What is the nature of spiritual warfare? Let's look at that first here. And the background in Ephesians is this. Ephesians begins with a profound explanation of the mystery of the gospel and our new life in Christ. That's what it does. It's it's a very profound uh, book. And you can read it and read it and read it again, and you learn every time. You learn more and more about it. I've been in lots of Bible studies uh, on Ephesians. We used it for our inductive Bible studies in Urbana one time. And my boss, uh, the head of InterVarsity at the time, uh, uh, Alec Hill, memorize the whole book of Ephesians. I actually thought I would do it too, and I had to go at it and started, it, and it didn't get very far. It's a hard book to memorize, and I don't know if anyone here has memorized it, but he did, and he actually got all the way through and got it because he wanted to have that as part of his life during the time that we were coming up to Urbana. And then this is followed in Ephesians by practical advice on husbands, wives, fathers, children, masters, slaves, and servants. And the message is a simple one. The spiritual life change that begins in our lives makes a difference in the way that we live our lives in practical ways. But lest you think that these things can simply and easily be done— be nice to your wife, uh, uh, you know, treat your husband well, that kind of thing— Paul goes on to say, if you live the Christian life and engage in ministry to maintain that or stand firm, which is our mission conferencing you will have to fight. You will not be successful in your Christian life without engaging in spiritual warfare. He goes on to say that all of this, our daily lives, are part of spiritual warfare that's taking place around us. And unless we have the right equipment, know the real nature of the battle, and engage it aggressively, we can be defeated. If you ignore the reality of spiritual warfare and think you can live as a Christian and fly your spiritual kite, so to speak, without care, It won't be very long before that kite string will go limp in your hand and you'll hear a chorus of distant voices triumphantly yelling their victory cry, Oboe, Oboe, and it's a kind of taunt that echoes across the rooftops of the city. The Christian life is a battle and you have to prepare to fight it. Paul tells us that though this battle may be unseen, it is very real. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul writes in verse 12, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly paces. There are lots of ways this unseen battle is fought, and some of them actually are quite overt. I can remember a trip to Nepal one time. Uh, And we were there for uh, um, uh, some mission meetings, uh, related mission meetings, and part of the program was to bring in a Nepali woman. Uh, It was an older uh, grandma-type woman who was a widow who was a believer, and uh, I don't think had been a believer all that long, but she had been brought in in order to run a home for women, uh, girls, who had been sold into prostitution into India. And because they had become HIV positive because they had contracted AIDS or because they had other diseases or problems were sent back and they came back home and they weren't wanted by their families or by their villages and they had no place to go but just suddenly are back in Nepal. And so this home was set up to care for these, uh, uh, these, these girls who were suffering and this woman was in charge of it. And she was telling the story of that and she said, well, I was brought into Kathmandu. She came from the village and no understanding of what it was like in the city. And the missionary woman who brought her took her to a place to spend the night. And she said, I spent the night in that place and I could not understand why a woman who knew the Bible and was such a godly woman would put me in a place like that. All night long she said, I wrestled with the demons and fought with them and I had to pray and fight all night long. Couldn't she understand the reality of those spiritual forces that were there, those demonic forces that were there, and not put me in such a place to spend the night? Uh, uh, She didn't uh, uh, understand or see it. And in my own story, I can remember one time in my life, it's only been one time, where there was a very very real presence of demonic forces which you could hear, couldn't see, which you could feel and understand, and it was very, very real and very tangible, and it was an out-and-out fight. But that's only happened once in my life. The problem that we mostly have in the West and the temptation is not to see the spiritual battle at all. And this is what Satan does. either tries to overwhelm you with fear and, and, and superstition about this, that these, these forces are all powerful and, and can get you if you don't uh, follow them or, or succumb to them, or that, no, there's no such thing as, as, as Satan at all. There's no such thing as a spiritual battle. And this is our primary temptation here in the West. Spiritual battle exists in our relationships Part of getting along with my spouse in marriage is a spiritual battle. It isn't that I don't get along with her. It's just that Satan would love to destroy that marriage and do all sorts of things that he can because that's something that's instituted by God and it's part of our our Christian life. Our personal development in holiness, and many of us experience that. it is a spiritual battle. It's not just a matter of our wills, but it's the work of Satan that's in our lives. And there are things that we can do in preparation to fight that that will make it possible for us to be victorious in it. Spiritual warfare is part of our day-to-day living. That's what Paul is saying wonderful passage in the beginning of Ephesians. It tells us all about our changed life in Christ and what that means, and then the practical outworking of it in our day-to-day lives, and then goes on to say, but don't forget, you are in a battle, and you're fighting this. This is what you need to do. So that's the background that we have in this. What is, what is, what is spiritual warfare not? I think that that's important to also understand. So much... Of our spiritual lives these days, and this is part of our culture, my friends, is focused, is self-focused, and it's focused on ourselves as the, as the end, as the end in itself. Spiritual warfare is not all about us. It's about the cause, which is the kingdom of God on earth. We need to be prepared for that and to fight for it, but it's not all about us. Missionaries can get drawn into this. I know of one couple who uh, engaged in an exorcism where they were casting demons out of rock, rocks down at the bottom of their garden because of depression and illness that was in the home. felt that this was the demonic oppression. I don't know quite totally what to think about this, but I know that spiritual warfare is a lot more than that, and it's unlikely that that was the case or that that was what was there. It needs to be addressed in other ways. It is spiritual warfare that's happening, but casting them out of the rocks isn't the way uh, that it is solved. I remember my wife, when she was doing a master's degree here at Wheaton College back in the 90s in intercultural studies, part of the job that she had to do—she had a project that she had to do for that master's degree, and that was working in the BGC and doing some archiving for some of the mission documents that were there. And she commented to me that she was reading the prayer letters from 100 years ago, and what a difference they were between the prayer letters now. A hundred years ago, they were all focused on ministry and almost nothing about people's personal lives. And personal, and prayer letters today are all about our personal lives and sometimes very little about the actual ministry. Satan's approach is to have us either not believe in his reality or to be so consumed with the idea of his power that we focus on the wrong things. There is a personal protection, but it is for the purpose so that we can stand firm and fight. A sec- another thing about the, uh, another point about the nature of spiritual warfare is this, and that is that if you are engaged in ministry, and particularly if you are engaged in ministry that is making a difference, and you're seeing lives changed and people coming to Christ, you will come under attack, and you can even come under special attack. Years ago, I was chairman of a board of an organization that was in the Middle East, and uh, it was a very effective organization in terms of its outreach, and uh, things were happening within the organization where uh, in an evaluation process it it seemed to be necessary that the CEO should be dismissed, the person who was in charge should be dismissed. And this was fairly unanimous, um, um, and it was difficult because it came up at the time of the board, and so there were negotiations and, and some hard things said back and forth and uh, the person who had been invited to do the Bible teaching for this board meeting was a person we consider to be a kind of patron saint uh, in the Middle East, uh, Lucien Akkad, who was head of the Bible Society of Cyprus in the Gulf, an excellent Bible teacher, very godly man, and raised his family in the midst of the Lebanese War and had so many wonderful testimonies of God's work to tell there. And he, he was the one that was doing the Bible teaching uh, for this. And I remember he got up and said he saw all this that was happening, on, happening and he had to get up and do this teaching. He said, you know, he said, "Uh, ministry is very difficult, and when uh, you engage in ministry, nasty and terrible things happen, and this is the work and the attack of Satan. He wasn't, wasn't particularly commenting directly on what should or shouldn't be done in the organization. But he went on to say, he said, my sons wanted to engage in ministry and be involved in ministry like uh, uh, I'm, I'm in, you know. And I told them I won't let them do it. They have to work for 10 years in the secular world and grow up and mature before they engage in ministry. Why? Because ministry is much harder and you will come under much more attack. Christians are under attack in Pakistan. They are under attack in Pakistan in various ways. And in the time that we've been in Lahore, Joseph Colony, a place, a Christian colony, 178 houses were burned down all on what we believe to be a bogus blasphemy charge uh, that was done there. Uh, Many people seek to find their way out of the country if they can. They are only 1.5% of the population of the nation, and that's just... People who claim to be Christians, not those who may know anything about their faith or be true believers, uh, as it were. And of those, only 6%, 6% are actually educated to the level where they can uh, read and write, comfortably read and write. And so it's only a small percentage of the Christian community, overall Christian community, that has these privileges. And many try to get out of the country, but I was blessed enormously uh, in this year in our speaking congregation where I heard a sermon shortly after uh, New Year's, and it was on the life of Joseph. And the preacher got up and said, well, you know, what is it that you pray for when you come into the new year? You look back over this last year, and you pray that the bad things that happened will not happen as much, and the good things that will happen will be even better. May this be a better year for us than the year before. This is the prayer that you have. That is not what you should pray, our preacher told us. That is not what you should pray. Taking from the life of Joseph, do you think Joseph wanted to be sold into slavery? Do you think he wanted to be sold into slavery? No. It was a terrible thing that happened, and he was treated terribly before he was exalted and honored and eventually put in a position of leadership, but they didn't know what that outcome was. And, And yet God used that terrible incident in order to bring his purposes to pass and to protect his people. We are the Church in Pakistan. What should our prayer be? That we should stand firm and be bold witnesses in Pakistan, not run away, or pray that life will be easier. I can tell you it's going to be harder, this preacher said. I can tell you this next year it's going to be harder. It's not going to be easier. But God has us here for a purpose. Well, that was a wonderful, wonderful message to hear, and it is the message of our missions conference here. We have terrorists in Pakistan and they're out to get our college uh, when when we had we had it was a, it was a, it was a it's been a hard time at times with all of the security concerns and constant harassment by the government to do more to do more to do more because they don't want an incident but I'll tell you something we're not the only ones that are under attack and I, I would far rather deal with the Taliban and the terrorists we have in Pakistan than with some of the things our, we as Christians face in the United States today. I was out in, in, in the East Coast just this past week and talking to a board member for Gordon College there. They almost yanked the accreditation for Gordon College over this issue of homosexuality. They were prepared to take away the accreditation of that college— And then I was talking to a pastor friend who has been part of his denomination, loves the denomination preaching, and he's going to be giving up his role as a pastor there because he will not marry uh, two people of the same sex. Believes it's wrong, it's unbiblical, and he's out because of it. Well, if that's not persecution, I don't know what it is. These things happen to us to make us yield, to give up the fight, but we must have the armor of God to prepare and to fight them. So there's the full protection we need from God for this battle. With kites, you have to do it. Emphasis this on full. Uh, In kite fighting, you have to get everything right. You can't just do one thing. You have to get the weight of the string and the size of the kite just right for the wind that's there. You want the string to be the color that is camouflaged, because seeing the string is, is something you want it not to be easily seen in the sky because it gives the other person it, an advantage. That red string, actually, by the way, is not very good string to use. that's too bright. Uh, you want to get the kite balance and the weight, even um, when you buy a kite, you take it and you bend it like this a little bit, and if one side is a little looser than the other, that shaved bamboo, you know that when the wind pushes against it, one side will bend a little bit more, and that'll cause the kite to spin and not go where you want, because you want complete control of that kite when you're flying it. If the, when you tie the strings on the kite, if the top string is too long, it will spin one way. If the bottom string is too long, it'll spin another way. You get one thing wrong, and you lose your kite in a kite fight. And there are many different temptations and ways that Satan can attack you in our lives, in our Christian lives, and we have to use God's protection for all of them. And that's why Paul uses this analogy of the different parts of uh, the battle gear, the armor of God that we have described for us in Ephesians chapter 6. He says two times, use the whole armor of God. There's six things that are in here. Use the whole armor of God, not just one or two, but every one of these things is important. And I'll mention them briefly here. The belt of truth. Uh, I understand that there'll be more talk about that in the uh, a sermon uh, this evening, so I won't talk. Uh, I won't mention that too much. But it holds it all together. Truth that is so so important as a part of our Christian life. We cling to what is true, and we proclaim it strongly. But then there's the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation in verses 14 and in verse 17. I'll take them together. The wages of sin is death. We know that. That's the law of God. God cannot stand unholiness and unrighteousness in His presence. And when there is sin— that leads to death and leads to a broken relationship with God. We cannot come into God's presence. But as Christians, we have the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. Those are the two places on the body that you can lose your life when you are, when you are struck, is the head and the chest. Those are the two places where you can be killed uh, the wages of sin. And in Jesus Christ, the penalty for that sin has been paid in the, in, his atonement, in, in the atonement with his death on the cross. And by believing in him, we receive salvation and we stand with the imputed righteousness of God in our battle in this earth. There are, and we have this and we can claim it with confidence that is an important part of our uh, of our uh, uh, of our preparation to know and have become a believer of god have our a believer in god through jesus christ have our sins forgiven experience salvation and wear that imputed righteousness the righteousness of god which is given to us not something that we have been that we that we earn and then there's the shield of faith in verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. That great chapter on faith says, "Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen." The unseen spiritual battle. The sh- the shield of faith guards against the unseen fiery darts or flaming darts of the evil one, and. I see, seem to feel a lot of these flaming darts in my job, and I'm sure that you do, too, in your lives. Sometimes it all gets to be a little bit much. It's one thing after another, and I remember this last winter when they had the terrible incident in the university, or the school up in Peshawar. They closed our universities down, and over a period of six weeks, we had people from the government coming every single day, uh, scaring the bejabbers out of us, telling us, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that, and uh, uh, razor wire around our campus, lights along our walls. or hundred and four acres, uh, security guards, 95 security guards, getting guns for them so that they can protect us, uh, um, uh, putting in security cameras, uh, having a, a siren that can be sounded uh, so that uh, uh, everyone can be notified. And all of these things they kept in, uh, kept telling us about. You need to do this, you need to do that. And then assuring us that uh, a foreman Christian college was right at the very top of the list of potential targets uh, in, in Pakistan. Uh, right at the very top. and And this happening, and then you have all of the other issues that are are, are going on, it all seems a little much, and it is very good to hold up that shield of faith and all of these darts and and challenges that are coming and say, this battle has already been won. God is in charge of this universe, and we will do what needs to be done in order to be responsible here at Foreman Christian College, but we are protected and safe through Jesus Christ. He's the one, and he's the, he, he is where our hope is and where our, um, and where our strength lies. And that shield of faith is the one that keeps, makes it so that one can carry on in the midst of all of these discouraging things that can come. And then in verse 17, we have the sword of the Spirit. It is the only offensive weapon it's the only offensive piece of equipment that the Roman soldier has here. Everything else is defensive, except for the shoes, and I'll mention those in a minute. But it's the only. And it is the word of God. That's what we're told. It's the word of God. And Hebrews 1, 12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Use the word of God. That is what we do when we engage in spiritual warfare. And then there are the shoes, which is in verse 15, the sixth piece, which is readiness for the gospel of peace. Where the shoes, which is the readiness for the gospel of peace. What does that mean? It's reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 52, 7, which says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news. That's what our missions conference is about those feet that are ready and prepared with the gospel of peace to go to the battle, to go to the place where it is in order to proclaim the gospel, taking it to others. All right? Dressed, we're ready, we have this equipment, Uh, we know salvation, we have the truth of God, we have the sword of the Spirit, we have the shoes that are ready to go. What do we do in a fight? Well, we fight strategically. In kite fighting, you win by cutting the other person's kite. So, as I mentioned earlier, you know you want to do it a certain way. Yet, you know, maneuver his kite out of the wind and keep your kite uh, in the wind. Um, you want to sometimes come right under where the kite is attached to the string, so that it hangs down and it'll cut and it drops off. Uh, sometimes you might even intentionally make your kite uh, misbehave, so that it spins all the time. And as you put it up like that, you get near to the other person's string, and it spins around that string. And then you do a, a maneuver that pulls it in quickly, and not only do you uh, win the kite fight, but you get the other person's kite as well. You, he's trying to pull it in, you're trying to pull it in, and you try to pull it in faster than he does so that you get his kite rather than him getting your kite. And it's eyesight, it's experience, it's skill in controlling the highly temperamental kites, and then it's spending quite a long time studying the strategies and the techniques of another person, realizing where the weakness might be in the other person who's flying the kite. What does he, how does his kite behave? What kinds of things does he do before you engage that fight? So we are protected so we can stand firm and fight. We're told this in 11, 13, and 14. This is what Paul says to us. Dressed up and ready to go, and what's our strategy here? Three things in our passage, three very simple things. The first one is this. Use the Word of God. Use the Word of God. That's the sword of the Spirit. That's the sword sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Memorize it. Quote it. Preach it. Teach it. It is powerful, and it will do its work. It will do its work. There are all sorts of things that we can talk, talk about. But go back to the Word of God and use that in your spiritual warfare. I remember I had a good friend who was a, a, a Muslim boy when I was studying in early days in, in, in Pakistan. And he would never read the Bible. He's been told that it's been corrupted and changed, and so he won't read it. And I used to write out verses and give them to him. We would talk, and we'd have him various things that would come up in his life. And I'd write something out from Scripture and, do and give it to him. And He would read it, and he would talk about it, and it had a profound effect with great respect. And I'd say, oh, that's from our Bible. Oh, that's from our Bible. You never pick up the Bible to read it. But those words, those words spoke to him and gave him, he hasn't become a Christian, but gave a profound, had a profound effect on him. It is powerful. The second is, go to the battle. That's what the shoes shod with the readiness for the gospel of peace is all about. Go to the battle. Take the offensive. Feet that are active to bring the good news to others. That's what our missions conference is about, not waiting for them to come to us. It's great for them to come into our church and hear the gospel message. But in case you hadn't noticed it, the vast majority of people, even here in Wheaton, don't come into our church or even into any church. they don't go into it. How is the gospel going to be heard? We have to go to them and engage there. I remember visiting or actually speaking in a church in, in, in Edinburgh, which was affectionately called P's and G's. It was of St. Paul's and St. George's, which had uh, combined into one congregation because they're struggling a bit and it had become very, very lively and well wed, well led with a lot of young people and, and several services during the day, and, and I, I was I was I was preaching there, and I discovered that they held a service in a pub just about half a block away. People don't want to come into this church and we go down to the pub and we have a service there, packed out uh, every, every week as they held their service there. Well that can be done too, but more than that more than that, uh, we need to get out and into the community and engage in places where we're not mixing with believers uh, every day but, uh, and those that would support us and, and help us. And then the third thing that our passage tells us is to pray. That is how we are to fight. It's the exercise of prayer. You know, Paul has an enormous emphasis on prayer. And I want to say something to College Church, and it's this. I commend you for being a church of prayer. I commend you for being a church of prayer. We have a number of churches that we've been connected with, and through the years, College Church has been the one that regularly asks for prayer requests. And as difficult, I know, as it is to keep prayer meetings going in today's day and age, that's not a very popular format, Uh, it does continue uh, here uh, in in College Church. Much of the fighting takes place in prayer. I remember I was in a... um, um, a, uh, visiting a, a kind of a, a Christian order in Germany. And uh, uh, it was led by a person who had come out of homosexuality. And they built their ministry around prayer, dealing with people who had drug problems, um, moral problems, major issues. And they built it around prayer. They had this prayer room, and they sat, and they would pray and pray and pray and pray with their people. They recognized that what they were fighting was a spiritual battle other things that were part of it as well. But they recognized it was a spiritual battle, and I thought, there's a group that prays and was doing a a, a good job as as they fought that battle. There are two other strategies that, are part of this, that aren't that are part of this passage, but I have great confidence that if Paul were here, he would agree with them. He would agree and say, yeah, I agree with you. That's, that, that, that is correct. Now, I'm not a military man, and I don't know anything about um, battle tactics. We have a son who's in the military, and he knows a lot more, I'm sure, about it than I do. But there are two things that I can say with absolute certainty about how you fight, about how you fight, and they apply to spiritual warfare as, as well. The first is this. You fight the enemy, you don't collaborate with them. You fight the enemy, you don't collaborate with them. And the second is, you fight the enemy, not other Christians. You fight the enemy, not other Christians. The pull of syncretism in our society is enormously strong. Believe it or not, it's even strong in Pakistan. All roads lead to God. You know, you've got your path and I've got my path. And, you know, we all are aiming at the same thing. And uh, uh, it doesn't really make any difference, does it, uh, uh, kind of question. No, that's not true. It makes an enormous difference. Uh, We know uh, uh, what the issues are regarding our faith. And the pull of syncretism in our society here is enormously strong, drawing us away from our faith. Fight that enemy. Don't join it. Fight that enemy. Don't join him. And the second is fight the enemy, not other Christians. The biggest problem some missionaries face is getting along with other missionaries. Go out there, and they disagree with each other. They have some of these terrible fights. And, you know, we have some pretty bad fights sometimes in our churches— and why is it that we are fighting one another rather than those who are outside? I had a friend who was uh, in charge of a radiology department in a hospital, and uh, he was telling me they had a terrible um, um, dust-up in the hospital where I, I, I didn't know any of the details of it, but the different departments and people were doing a fair bit of mudslinging, and there was a, a, a big battle between, uh, uh, between some of the staff and the departments that were being run in this hospital. And he was called in by the administrator of the hospital. He's a very outspoken Christian. And he was called in by the administrator of the hospital. And the administrator says, he said, you know, I don't know how you do it. He said, he said, you're a real credit to your faith. He says, I know that that's very important to you. But your behavior is exemplary throughout this fight. You know, you haven't retaliated, and you've been polite and kind to everybody. And, and boy, you, 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 you sure have been a good Christian in all of this. And that's a, a testimony to your faith. And what my friend Charles told me, he says, oh, he said, boy, he says, what I wanted to say to him, and I couldn't. He says, boy, this is nothing compared to a church fight. He says, you get a, or, or to a church split, I should say, a church split. The man, he says, we had a church split. It was a lot worse than this, the kind of things that people were saying. Why? Why? You know, I mean, I was aware of the situation. I saw godly people on either side. Why did we fight that? What is wrong? Surely that's the work of Satan. Fight the enemy, my friends. Don't collaborate with him. We can have our differences, but have them in such a way that we remain co-belligerents and allies in this battle that we are fighting in the heavenlies. And finally, and finally, question is this, what does victory look like? Okay, what does victory look like? When, when have we won? How do we know that we've won? Here's the battle, Paul says, here's the battle. You know when you won a kite fight, the other kite goes sailing off and yours is still standing, and you're the one that shouts oboe, that mocking, mocking sound across the top of the, of, the, of the roofs in the city. You know when you've won in a battle, you know the enemy surrenders, he's dead or he runs away, and, and you've won, you, 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 you've, you've got it. But what does winning and standing firm look like in the spiritual warfare? And if you're to remember one thing from this sermon, let it be this. Let it be this. Paul makes it clear that he wins by fearlessly making known the mystery of the gospel for as long as he lives. That's how he wins. That's how he wins. The last verses of our passage, last part of our passage says, and also pray for me, Paul says, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He wants to be faithful to the end. He doesn't win by surviving or by letting or the Romans letting him out of prison. He's writing this from jail. He doesn't win by being restored to those who loved and cared for him, to those who loved and cared for him. He wins by being bold and preaching the gospel clearly until the very end. That is victory. And when I was preparing the sermon, I was a bit convicted about what I asked for in prayer requests when Wanda Poor, our college church prayer secretary, writes to get monthly requests. And often it's for, for protection, it's for this or it's for that, and it's but most importantly, it should be for praying that the banner of Jesus Christ and the gospel of good news will fly high and boldly in Pakistan that all may see and know that all may see and know that there is a church of Jesus Christ in Pakistan that is proclaiming the good news of the gospel which is available for one and all who wish to respond it's not a given that paul would be strong until the end he was afraid that he would be tempted to compromise the same is true even more so i believe for us so easy to compromise. He's, he's not sure he's going to be able to do it. And as we fight the spiritual battle and engage in strategic prayer, let's fight the right enemy and pray for the right thing, which is the ongoing proclamation of the gospel using the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God.
0: Would you join me in prayer, please? Gracious Father, it's a good reminder this morning that you are a missionary sending God. It's your desire that all could hear and understand the gospel message. Thank you for College Church and for the willingness they, are, they have to uh, send out missionaries to support your work around the world. We pray that you would bless them. Encourage them as they seek ways to please you. We pray, Father, for the wind of your Spirit to fill our kites for your glory. When we saw, we saw with your power that your victories are understood. Father, we pray that you would give us strong backs to bear the loads that you give us. We thank you for the burdens. We thank you for the heartaches because through them we find your peace and your understanding and your grace and your mercy. Father, for the family of Martha Baptista, we pray for them as the passing of Bob this past week. We ask that your hand of mercy will be upon them and they will know your peace and of your grace. Father, we ask that your hand would guide us as we leave here today that your peace of understanding would fill our hearts as we, it it is our desire that you would make us worthy of your calling and fulfill every purpose in us to the glory of Jesus Christ. And now, Father, as we pray the prayer that you taught your disciples, we pray that our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you please stand as you are able?